Machete attack. It appeared that someone had crashed a car. Shocking video with victims injured at a gas station and what happened when police arrived. A surge in gun sales. I yeah. bet you we did gun sales in a day yesterday. How the government cracked down on handguns seems to have backfired. And the barge that won't budge. This is not an insignificant uh, bill. It's a, ma- it's a major expense. It- the increasing costs and expanding timeline to get rid of Vancouver's infamous beach feature. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. A bizarre and violent attack early this morning in East Vancouver. And a warning, uh, some of this video is disturbing. It began with the driver of a van running down another man at a gas station. Grace Key joins us live from where this all unfolded. And Grace, it got even stranger from there. Yeah, this violent rampage continued. So the driver in a red minivan actually jumped the curb right here just on East Hastings. You can still see some of the debris there on the ground. He hit a man who was just going back out to his white pickup truck after grabbing a cup of coffee inside the Esso station. And then the van finally crashed into this tree. It was a horrific scene at the Esso gas station in East Vancouver as a man armed with a machete and knife started chasing people. David Leonardo was heading to work when he saw a red minivan with a missing tire jump the curb. And there was a gentleman right beside his truck and he struck the gentleman. I saw a gentleman fly about maybe about like 20 feet up in the air. It happened at about 6.20 Wednesday morning at East Hastings and Skeena Street. The victim was heading back to his truck with a cup of coffee when he was struck. I just ran over and, uh, you know, I grabbed my jacket, I put it underneath the gentleman's head. I noticed that his leg was broken. So the guy, after, he comes out of, the tr- out of his van through his window, and I looked over at him and he looked kind of like intoxicated or maybe on drugs or something like that. He was mumbling like a few words like, uh, this is what happens when, like, or my ch- like you ch- attack my children or my grandchildren. But he's talking really crazy, right? He opens the side door of his van and he's scrumbling through things. I noticed like, a couple of pipes fall on the ground, like some like drug paraphernalia or something. David and two others run over to help the man on the ground when suddenly they hear a scream. All I hear was, uh, watch out, and I see, I look over and I see the gentleman start, like, he had a machete in his hand in one hand, and then he had a knife in the other one. He started swinging at another person that was looking over. And then he turns to me and he starts swinging at me, so I ran the other way. That attacker guy leans down and he starts stabbing the gentleman in the back. And then that's when I ran back because like, I'm like, oh man, he's going to kill him, right? So I ran back to try to like, kind of like, you know, shoo the guy away. And uh, me and a few gentlemen that were here as well. The attacker hops on a parked motorcycle, eventually gets off, and that's when police arrive. He drops his weapons and immediately surrenders. David was able to speak with the victim before he was rushed to hospital. I leaned down and I told him, I'm sorry, and I hope you recover. And he grabs me, he gives me a kiss, right? And... So that was the heartbreaking part, and I just feel kind of terrible that I, you know, that that had to happen to him, and I maybe I could have done more. I don't know. Grace, clearly some erratic behavior there, and we're learning this wasn't the suspect's first interaction with police today. 
Yeah, so about 1.30 in the morning, a male driver in the same vehicle was spotted driving erratically throughout several municipalities throughout the Lower Mainland. At one point, police did box in the vehicle. He allegedly crashed into a police vehicle and then fled. So police are calling this a random attack. There was no previous interactions with the victim and the attacker. The victim in this case, the stabbing victim, he has non-life-threatening injuries and is in stable condition. Chris? All right, Grace Key reporting live in Vancouver. Thanks, Grace. And we have breaking details now involving another mass shooting in the United States. Tulsa, Oklahoma police say four people are dead and the gunman also killed after what's being killed in, or called an active shooter situation at a medical building on the St. Francis Hospital campus in Oklahoma. Tulsa police say they responded to a man armed with a rifle at the hospital and say officers are currently going through the facility room by room to check for additional threats. Well, the gun debate is gaining steam here with the federal public safety minister in B.C. today to promote the Liberal government's newly announced gun control rules. While the stated goal of that legislation is to take more weapons out of circulation, as Aaron MacArthur reports, gun shop owners say they have been doing record business since the plan was announced on Monday. A month worth of sales in one day. Since the federal government announced impending changes to gun laws, people have been flocking to buy handguns before the new restrictions are implemented. I know some of my competitors have actually closed their doors to the public just to try and catch up with the surge of, of orders and foot traffic. The federal government on Monday announced sweeping changes to gun ownership in this country. A permanent ban will be placed on buying, selling, importing or transferring handguns. Current owners will be allowed to keep the handguns they have. Gun rights advocates say these changes miss the mark. They've told Canadians that they're not going to tolerate firearm-related violence and that they wouldn't uh, target licensed gun owners. And they brought measures that directly and exclusively target licensed gun owners. I don't accept the stereotype that this legislation goes after uh, them at all. What it does do is it takes on very directly organized crime. Critics argue a vast majority of gun crimes in this country are committed by people with access to illegal weapons, often smuggled in from the U.S. Eileen Mohan's son Christopher was murdered 15 years ago. She admits this legislation is far from perfect, but it is an important first step. I was waiting for 15 years for someone to stand up against guns. And today is a victorious day. Handgun ownership in Canada has increased 71% since 2010. There are more than 1 million handguns legally owned. And while the Liberals want this legislation passed as quickly as possible, there is no timeline for when it might be enacted. Aaron McCarthy, Global News. Vancouver police have now identified a person of interest in the defacing of a Chinatown mural. You're a scumbag. Why, I just want to know why. Why did you do it? The suspect was confronted by Chinatown businessman Bradley Spence, who identified the suspected vandal through the security cam video. The Chinese mural had only been painted five weeks ago when a tagger spray-painted over it on the weekend. Police say Spence did the right thing by calling 911 when he spotted the suspect, but an officer was not dispatched at that time because police never received the notification. 
So thanks to this astute um, witness and uh, who called police, we are working with him. Um, we've obtained the video, we've ID'd a suspect, and we are um, continuing to investigate. Chinatown has been plagued in recent months by taggers who have been vandalizing murals and buildings, creating a huge expense and a lot of frustration for those who live and work in that area. Well, the embattled mayor of Surrey will not attend the next two meetings of the Surrey Police Services Board. He made that announcement late this afternoon at a virtual meeting of the board. As Catherine Urquhart tells us, Doug McCallum has been under intense pressure to move aside until his public mischief charge has been dealt with. Almost two weeks ago, Global News successfully obtained sealed court documents in the public mischief case against Doug McCallum. Revelations in those documents have resulted in mounting pressure for McCallum to step aside. This is a time for counsel to hear. As mayor and as chair of the Surrey Police Service Board. I think he needs to get out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It might not be a bad thing to take some time until things have kind of simmered down a little. He should be gone, bro. A police investigation was launched after McCallum claimed his foot had been driven over by Debbie Johnstone. It ran across, right across here. Information to obtain documents that were unsealed following a Global News court challenge state in part, McCallum provided a version of events that has been partially disproved based on the statement provided by driver Debbie Johnstone and the video surveillance obtained from Save on Foods. Tempers flared at Monday's Surrey City Council meeting, which was shut down amid renewed calls for him to resign. Any elected official who is criminally charged for lying to the police needs to really reevaluate what they are doing here. This office is not for the individual, it is for the public. McCallum had previously refused to step aside as chair, pointing to his role under the Police Act. But at a virtual SPS board meeting, McCallum noted the Police Act Reform Committee has recommended mayors not serve as police board chairs. Then he announced he'll be a no-show at upcoming meetings. I'm going to um, be absent, which is one way I can do it, um, for those two meetings until, um, until the election. This is all just a cover for him not dealing with the issue at hand. And the issue is... The mayor has been criminally charged. He needs to face it. He needs to do the right thing, and he chooses not to. Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum is scheduled to be tried on the public mischief charge in October, two weeks after the next municipal election. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. All right, Keith Baldry joins us now with more on this. Keith, the province passed a bill that deals with misdeeds and infractions mm -hmm. by elected officials. So what, if anything, can happen in this situation? Yeah, this legislation introduced this session by Municipal Affairs Minister Nathan Cullen comes in the wake of a number of incidents. This McCallum situation, not unique in recent years. We've seen other mayors and councillors face uh, charges, going on leave, not going on leave. So here are the new rules under the new changes to various municipal statutes enacted uh, into law sometime soon. Mandatory paid leave now is going to occur when a councillor is charged with an indictable offence. Leave continues until the matter is resolved one way or another. A conviction will result in disqualification from office. But again, this is going forward. I had a lengthy chat with uh, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth today. He says the government's view, they're going to let series events play out the way they will with, under the current process that are, are in place. And very much uh, it, to the point that the new law is go about going forward, not going back.
With much legislation, there's always issues that uh, when something is, is made retroactive, uh, and in this case, the legislation is, is forward-looking uh, and applies from when the legislation is introduced, and at the same time, you know, there is, the, uh, there is a court case uh, underway. Uh, the judicial process is unfolding as it should, and that's how our system works. Now, this bill was passed uh, third reading, which is the final level of, uh, of readings, on May 3rd. But it hasn't received royal assent yet, but that's likely going to come tomorrow when Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin attends the legislature and gives royal assent to the remaining bills in the order paper because the legislature session ends tomorrow. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. The Bank of Canada has raised its key interest rate to 1.5%, and that is probably not the last bump it's going to get. The jump was widely expected by economists as the Bank of Canada moves to rein in inflation. It's the third such raise this year. And while the cost of living is at its highest in three decades, don't look for any relief just yet. The central bank signaling even higher interest rates before things finally begin to ease. And as of today, B.C.'s minimum wage earners will be getting an extra 45 cents an hour, as a, a bumping up to 15.65 per hour. But as Kamal Karamali reports, advocates say between B.C.'s cost of living and the ongoing period of inflation, that wage increase doesn't come close to meeting people's needs. It's a day minimum wage workers have been waiting for, a pay bump. I'll take any penny I can get. Trinity Joy is on her way to her job as a fry cook. A little extra sizzle to her step, thanks to the extra dough. I live on my own too, so uh, minimum wage kind of kills me a bit. But um, at least it's going up a little bit. BC's minimum wage has gone up by $3 over the past five years. Last year, it sat at $15.20 per hour, now climbing another 45 cents this year. Tied to the province's annual inflation rate last year, which was at 2.8%. It's not enough to raise a family out of poverty on. Compare that though to BC's living wage, which calculates what a family would need to live comfortably. In Metro Vancouver and Victoria, it's above 20 bucks an hour. Given the rise in housing costs in particular and other inflationary costs right now, it just leaves them uh, a family and probably most individuals with not enough money to cover the basics. Here at Patina Brewery, owners paying their employees a living wage. The bills? Yeah, for sure. Kelsey Hazelwood on her way to making nearly 20 bucks an hour as a server. How are you guys doing here? It does keep me motivated to stay here. And that also meant the employment applications have come pouring in at a time when many businesses are struggling to find staff. We just have more and more friends and family walking through the door. I like to hire them because that creates that community. We cannot afford <laughs> life right now on minimum wage, on the current minimum wage, and something needs to be done about it. Provincial data shows roughly 6% of BC's workforce earned minimum wage last year. The BC NDP arguing that's the highest minimum wage of any province in Canada. Kamal Karamali, Global News. Many people say it's a blight on the beachfront, but it's not going anywhere for now. The English Bay Barge has been stuck there for more than six months. And you might be surprised to know how much the company that owns it is paying in fines for leaving it there. That's next on the NewsHour. The dramatic conclusion of a Hollywood trial that exposed the toxic, troubled marriage of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. That's coming up on the NewsHour. And Squash in a Box, the unusual venue that puts the sport and Vancouver 
on full display coming up later. Right now, though, it has been 199 days since the barge crashed into Vancouver's Sunset Beach during a wild November storm. It remains stuck there to this day and now flanked by 24-hour security. The city won't reveal how much that's costing so far, and you might be surprised to find out how much the barge owner is facing in penalties. More than six months after it arrived, Vancouver's English Bay barge doesn't appear to be going anywhere. I think it's time to go. <laughs> well, I think it should be moved. Give us back our park. Attempts to move the barge, which broke loose from its mooring during a wild November storm, are at a standstill. The vessel is structurally unsound, cannot be refloated, and will be taken apart on site. There's no timeline or start date for its removal. There's really nothing that they can do other than let it sit there. Even though there were once fears the barge might crash into the Burrard Bridge, Transport Canada says no fines have been issued to its owner. There really isn't an offence under the Canada Shipping Act for, for letting it sit there. The question comes back to how did it end up there in the first place? And says maritime lawyer Mark Isaacs whether federal regulations were followed. Transport Canada says it investigated the barge's grounding and found no violations of the Canada Shipping Act, hence no penalties. There's a, a big storm, uh, but the net result is this giant barge is, is sitting on the beach and taxpayers are on the hook now. The barge's stay at Sunset Beach comes with a growing bill, including 24-7 security. Providence Security President Mike Jagger says his conservative estimate pegs those costs at $800 a day. Almost 200 days in, that's upwards of $158,000 so far. The city says the barge owner is responsible for all costs and it will be seeking reimbursement. It's a very expensive to uh, provide uh, you know, human security guard coverage 24-7 uh, with, without an end in sight. If the city can't recover the costs, Isaac says vessel owners are required to have wreck removal insurance, and if necessary, it could make a claim with the barge owner's insurers. I think people come to see landmarks like this. With fans, its own website, and barge chilling beach marked on Google Maps, those who'd rather see it disappear will have to imagine its removal. With help from this local visual effects artist's Sea Monster storyline. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Well, good news for travelers with tickets booked on Flair Airlines. The Canadian Transportation Agency has ruled the low-cost air carrier is Canadian, so it can keep its license. The decision ends a months-long battle by the airline to clarify its ownership and governance structure or lose its right to fly in this country. The airline's license was under investigation due to the influence of a U.S.-based investor company had turned to that investor in order to stay afloat during the pandemic. On the topic of travel, coming up, a woman in passport purgatory. Incredibly stressful. Incredibly stressful. How the application she filed for her daughter took a bizarre turn with a travel deadline looming. And grieving parents desperate for answers about the suspected health care failure that contributed to their son's death. Why Fraser Health refuses to talk specifics. 
tow truck has arrived on scene to a stall vehicle here on the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge. It's southbound at about mid-span in the right lane. As a result, traffic is backed up solid from Mountain Highway out of North Vancouver. Through a new charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Auto Glass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a stall at the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge. Overhearing another story tonight about the challenges British Columbians are facing in getting a passport. As Kylie Stanton shows us, a Nanaimo mother applied to renew her daughter's passport more than five months ago and still hasn't received it. And the daughter's trip is just days away. All of the practices, all of the games lead to one moment. But there's a chance BC's women's field lacrosse team will be experiencing it without one of their star players. MVP? 13-year-old Vanessa Fauchin is supposed to be traveling to North Carolina in one week to compete in an international tournament. But that's only if her passport arrives in time. It gets closer and it gets closer and you can't call them, you can't email them. Fauchin's mother began the application process more than five months ago back in January, but the passport was rejected several times, only recently learning the divorce order provided was missing a clause. It went from 15 to 17, and they said, nope, we're, we're not accepting it. You need a new order. It, it's a process to get a new order, including a judge and court time. So instead, she had her lawyer write a letter on her behalf, explaining there was an error when the order was drafted 11 years ago, and the missing paragraph does not pertain to the daughter, writing this should not be a concern over the child obtaining her passport. You know, we've all had passports their whole lives, and it's never been like this. Right? It's just never, it's never taken this long. That seems to be the experience of so many British Columbians desperate to get their hands on the travel documents. And as lineups grow, so too does the frustration. This is the worst form of bureaucracy I've ever seen. Like, horrible. Service Canada previously blaming the backlog on a surge of applications due to the easing of pandemic travel restrictions. It did not respond to our request for comment today coaches, teammates. But Gibson did receive a voicemail Tuesday saying the passport is now being printed in Surrey. But whether it will arrive in time for when her daughter is supposed to take off is still very much up in the air. Is it going to be here? Is it not going to be here? Am I going to have to tell the team she can't make it? Am I going to be out thousands and thousands of dollars? There has to be a better way in 2022. Kylie Stanton, Global News. June has been declared Filipino Heritage Month in B.C. A ceremony to mark the occasion was held at the legislature this afternoon. People with roots in the Philippines have been living in B.C. since the 1880s. And today, more than 150,000 Filipinos call B.C. home, many of them working in the service industry and in health care. As we grew into now an almost one million strong community across Canada, and now the fastest growing immigrant community, our presence has always been felt, but regrettably, not much seen nor heard. We are, after, we are, are I believe, one of Canada's best kept secrets. <laughs> so the proclamation of Filipino Heritage Month is for us, our community, more than anything, our recognition that we are now being seen and heard. 
People across B.C. are being asked to take time this month to learn about the culture and traditions of the Filipino community. And the food, too. Just ahead, grieving parents desperate to tell their child's story. It's outrageous. It sickens me. How they're wondering if Fraser Health is hiding behind patient privacy rules. And the dramatic conclusion to the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial. Seeing some delays here for northbound traffic at the Alex Fraser Bridge due to a stalled semi. It's northbound before mid-span in the right lane and just a bit of a bottleneck effect on the approach. Today's Lotto 649 jackpot is an estimated $5 million plus an additional guaranteed $1 million prize. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a stalled semi at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Russian forces are gaining ground, pushing deeper into the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. Now on the cusp of capturing Luhansk and surrounding Ukrainian-held territory in Donetsk. The two provinces make up the Donbass, Ukraine's industrial heartland and Russia's stated target. Global's Jeff Semple reports from inside the city of Slovyansk, which appears to be the next stop on Russia's warpath. A rocket slammed into this residential street in the east Ukrainian city of Slovyansk. At least three people were killed. It shattered our windows and shook the building, she says. I'm planning to leave to Kyiv. If Russian forces do come to Slavyansk, these trenches will be the last line of defense. Vladimir Putin has said since the beginning that he's coming to liberate Russian-speaking communities in the Donbass from what he calls a Ukrainian genocide. But what we have found talking to people here is just the opposite. Ordinary civilians who are digging trenches, taking up arms, and preparing to fight. This gym teacher is now an officer in the Civil Defense Battalion. We hope our Western partners will send weapons to help us, he says. But even if they don't, we will do everything we can to protect our home. Air raid sirens now blare almost non-stop in the neighboring city of Kramatorsk. Three-quarters of its 200,000 residents have fled. For those left behind, volunteers are providing food. Before the war, Katerina Onoshenka was a lawyer. I'm a fighter, <laughs> so I stay here and I uh, fight for people's life. A couple of months ago, she was handing out food at this local train station. Ten minutes after she left, an explosion. It's terrible sound. She returned to find this. A Russian cluster bomb hit the crowded station. 59 people were killed. Onoshenko took this photo of the Russian rocket bearing the words, for the children. I don't know why, for what children they mean, what about, I don't know, for my children, no, I don't know. The mayor says many here used to be pro-Russian, not anymore. Now it's not, not thinkable. He told Global News the war is at a critical crossroads. The next two weeks are very important for Ukraine. It will depend for us, first of all, how long can we hold uh, this line. The answer could determine the fate of the Donbass and perhaps even the war. Jeff Semple, Global News, Sloviansk. A follow-up now to our story of anguished parents who lost their young son and the B.C. Health Authority refusing to talk about their tragic case five months later. As John Wall reports, experts say the claims by Fraser Health citing privacy restrictions are simply not accurate. 
one thing Jackson Glubis could always count on. <laughs> His mother always wanted what's best for her son. My only child, he um, was my sunshine. Um, I lived for Jackson. But Chinsia Rossi said that wasn't enough on December 27th when she rushed her son to Abbotsford Regional Hospital, screaming of head pain and violently throwing up. Instead of ordering a CT scan as she requested, she says the doctor gave Jackson some Tylenol and Advil and sent them home. He was with my son for 10 minutes. He gave him 10 minutes of his time. Jackson was rushed back to the hospital the next day and would die during emergency surgery at BC Children's of a brain bleed. It was an emergency. It was an emergency situation. <laughs> And I was brushed off. Five months after Jackson's death, his parents are still looking for answers and contacted Global News in hopes of finding them. I'm always uh, asking why we had one day to save him. Looking back on it, we had that one day. Instead, Fraser Health refused to speak to the specifics of Jackson's care, citing patient confidentiality, stating, we are unable to discuss details related to the specific case due to privacy law. Even though we notified the health authority days prior that his parents were willing to provide consent, verbal or written, to have Jackson's case information disclosed to Global News. Fraser Health replied it could not, regardless of consent. In Canada, uh, a patient's information actually belongs to, to them. According to BC's Information and Privacy Commissioner, as long as there's written consent from the patient, legal guardian or personal representative of the deceased, the privacy position often taken by health authorities is wrong. A public body might have other reasons for not wanting to release the information, but privacy won't be one of them uh, where a person is given consent to disclose uh, that information in writing. In a landmark Supreme Court of Canada decision dating back to 1992, Justice Gerard Vincent Laforet wrote, such information remains in the fundamental sense one's own for the individual to communicate or retain as he or she sees fit. Privacy is the low-hanging fruit the public bodies use as a scapegoat to deny access to information, and that's concerning. I don't understand why my son doesn't deserve a voice. It's, it's outrageous. It sickens me. Jackson's family has launched a formal complaint with the Patient Care Quality Office and are hoping the review gives them some answers. His grieving mother says the way Fraser Health has handled the situation has made this unimaginable loss even worse. John Hua, Global News. Coming up, from politics, or pardon me, from punk rock to politics. I ran an ad in the Georgia Strait looking to start a punk rock band. Squire sits down with Joe Keithley of DOA about his five decades of stirring up sh Oh, what? I mean, trouble. <laughs> Who wrote that? Must have been me. <laughs> and how the government is making it easier than ever to make the switch to an electric vehicle. Well, perhaps spurred on by rising gas prices or climate change, British Columbians are jumping on the electric vehicle movement in a big way. The province announcing today the number of electric vehicles on our roads has increased 1,600% over the past six years. The number of light-duty EVs has gone from 5,000 in 2016 to more than 85,000 today, the highest uptake in North America. And the B.C. government says it's continuing to expand the charging network so drivers don't have to worry about running out of power.
I've traveled all around BC. I've been stuck in avalanche control. I've been uh, I've been waiting for roads to open, and it's never been a problem. I've traveled all the way up to Smithers and over to Fernie and all points between. And uh, really, you know, it's it's going great, and it's a it's a pretty wonderful way to travel. BC is aiming to have all light duty vehicle sales by or be 26 percent higher by 2026, 90 percent by 2030, and 100 percent by 2035. You won't get an argument from us. No, we <laughs> jumped on that bandwagon a while back. All right, let's bring in uh, Christy Gordon with a look at our forecast. And uh, it was a nice warm day today, Christy. Yeah, so the hottest day of the year for areas away from the water. We're seeing showers right now, so things have changed a little bit. But certainly compared to the cool wet weather we've been used to, it was a nice change, that's for sure. Uh, I've got a high stream flow advisory I need to talk about, and I'll show you how hot it did get today. But first, I want to show you something. A lot of people send in photos, including, I know, Chris sent one out uh, via Twitter. Yes, a gorgeous halo was uh, seen from all around the lower mainland. So we had this thin veil of cloud, and that's a high-level cloud that has ice crystals in it. So when the sun filters its way through, it actually creates this beautiful rainbow around it. So a full a halo, you can see spotted from a various parts of the uh, lower mainland. And this one from Surrey shows that there was some other uh, optical pheno phenomenon also viewed. So thank you to everyone, including Chris, for sharing your photos with us. All right, so we were up to 28 degrees out through Hope. These are the temperatures at around 4, uh, 4.30, but 28 with the humid X values. So definitely a hot one. And that warm was felt in through northern BC, low 20s to mid 20s, and that's the high stream flow advisory that's in place. But there's rainfall on the way for that region. The concern is those will be upgraded to flood watches or warnings. So in the days to come, if you're in areas like Terrace or northern BC, you definitely want to be staying tuned. Meanwhile, for the south coast, a dry day on the way. We do have a slight chance of an isolated shower tomorrow evening and thunderstorms. So be aware of that. Dry during the day and another hot one. But thunderstorms possible tomorrow evening before the rain pushes back in on Friday and drops our temperature significantly. So massive change expected on Friday. All right, tonight's center windows weather window coming to you. Um, this is from a, a little Robin was out uh, getting a little bird bath. He's all clean now, but this is what I look like after you towel, towel dry your hair after a bath. So uh, cute little guy there, all puffed up. All right, guys, back to you. Definitely needs a blowout. <laughs> Thanks, Christy. Well, a verdict was reached today in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case. Amber Heard has been found liable for defaming Johnny Depp in an op-ed published in the Washington Post. Depp has been found liable for a statement his attorney made to the Daily Mail calling her claims a hoax. The decisions were handed down today in a Virginia courtroom. They awarded, uh, the jury awarded Depp a total $15 million damages and heard $2 million. The verdict marked the end of a dramatic trial in the civil suit that laid bare the troubled marriage between the stars. Do you find that Mr. Depp has proven by clear and convincing evidence that Ms. Heard acted with actual malice? Answer, yes. As against Amber Heard, we the jury award compensatory damages in the amount of $10 million. As against Amber Heard, we the jury award punitive damages in the amount of $5 million. Depp launched a $50 million lawsuit against his ex-wife, who testified that he physically and sexually assaulted her on multiple occasions.
All right, moving on. Uh, let us bring in, if we can, Squire for a look ahead to sports. Lots going on there. Yes, and uh, it includes something you might have noticed if you were downtown around the convention center. You might have noticed a squash court at Jack Pool Plaza. So there is fantastic venues like this all over the world. That's the main court for the Canadian Squash Championships. Definitely a room with a view. That is amazing. Also tonight, the punk rock attitude that keeps rock legend Joe Keithley going, even when he's wearing a suit and tie. All right, Squire is here now with sports. Yes, I am. Young man. I am a young man. <laughs> Especially to people who are older than exactly. me. Exactly. Uh, last night's game between the Oilers and Avalanche had 14 goals because of great skill from the various players on both teams and a lack of skill by the goalies. The Eastern Conference final, though, promises to be quite the opposite. Tampa and New York have two great goalies, and 14 goals might not be scored in the entire series. You would think that going in, but tonight's game is a little more offensive than you would imagine. There's Andre Vasilevsky. There's Igor Shosturkin. And let's begin the Eastern Conference final. Rangers get off to a quick start here, and I do mean quick. Mika Zibanejad over to Chris Kreider. Wide open, all alone. That's not the guy you should be leaving alone. He's the Rangers' best goal scorer. 1-0, first period, but Tampa gets it back. Steven Stamkos, who scored plenty of goals in his career, both in the regular season and the playoffs, ties it up. Big shot. Beat Shesterkin. 1-1. Let's go to the second period. Same score, Frank Vertrano. Beats Vasilevsky. You would think normally Vasilevsky would stop that, but he'll stop this. What a great save off Strom with the left leg. And then the tying goal for Tampa. Andre Palat. But the Rangers have scored two by Philip Heedle, both of them by Philip Heedle, and they now lead 4-2. to two. Not quite game one in the Western Conference final, but more goals than you would think. Okay, the best there is in Canadian squash are in Vancouver for the national championships. And many of them are playing an indoor sport in what you could call an outdoor setting. First outdoor squash tournament in Canadian history. It's amazing. It's a dream. Uh, we work very hard at this. And uh, it's one of the best locations in the world. Uh, I'm playing one of the best sports in the world. And uh, it's just incredible. For the next five days, the Olympic torches will be the secondary attraction at Jackpool Plaza. Vancouver hosting the largest Canadian squash championships in over two decades, with 400 players ranging from top amateurs to high-ranking world pros taken to the floor of Canada's only outdoor glass squash court. Definitely a niche market, and uh, we got the glass court from Toronto. There's only one in Canada. Um, what's unique about squash in a glass court, you can put these courts anywhere. Game ball Norton. Holly Naughton is a three-time professional squash association champion and is currently ranked 17th in the world. Holly's also won four Pan Am Games medals and later this summer she'll represent Canada at the Commonwealth Games. She's fresh off a tournament appearance in Egypt, so when it comes to taking in the sights and sounds of a non-traditional playing venue, she's all for it. This is a fantastic uh, venue to have a squash court. Um, I am lucky enough that I have played on courts that are in amazing venues, played in front of the pyramids of Giza in Egypt, um, I played San Francisco down at the bay on the pier, so there is 
fantastic venues like this all over the world, but for in Canada, this is the first time we've had something like this. You don't get to be in venues like this every day, so you've got to soak it up and you've got to think, wow, this is amazing. What do you want everybody to take away from this experience? I want everyone to uh, enjoy themselves. I want to come down here. Squash is just an amazing community. Uh, so come down, meet old friends, meet new friends, have a drink, uh, watch some squash, and uh, just have a really good time. The Canadian Squash Championships are on from now until Sunday night. Jay Janor, Global Sports. Okay, this is quite incredible. Ukraine's national men's soccer team against Scotland. Winner stays in the hunt for a spot in this year's World Cup. And Andrei Yarmolenko will score the first goal. And there are many Ukrainians in the crowd in Glasgow. One nothing for Ukraine. Then, 49th minute, Roman Yaremchuk with the header. This proves to be the winner. There would be two more goals, one by Scotland, one by Ukraine. But this win by Ukraine means they'll play Wales on Sunday morning, and the winner of that gets a spot in the World Cup. There you go. Wow, a lot of people cheering for them. All right, thanks, Squire. Up next, the Burnaby politician with a punk rock pass. Donald is here now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Sarah. Chris, we're following charges laid against protesters accused of breaching the coastal gas link injunction. Plus, we will almost certainly see fireworks once again at Surrey City Hall tonight. It is the first time City Council will reconvene since Monday's brief but explosive meeting, which was, of course, adjourned after just a few minutes. We have a reporter sitting in on that council meeting tonight, and we will have all the details coming up at 11. Chris Sophie. All, all right. Thanks very much for that, Sarah. All right. Well, uh, politics can get pretty colorful uh, sometimes. Some might say a little bit like a punk rock concert. Well, that, that just looked like one. Yeah, it did. I just saw. I, I don't know what they. A bit of a I don't think bit. they have those in Burnaby City Council meetings. At least I haven't seen. I haven't really watched many Burnaby City Council meetings. <laughs> I should mention that. But uh, Joe Keithley is there, and Joe Keithley, of course, for many, 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 many years, has been better known as the guy who leads DOA. Ready to roll. Ready to roll. Joe Keithley has spent a lifetime adhering to one very simple but effective equation. I talk minus action equals zero. Yeah. That, yeah, which is like kind of a, a good way to live life, right? And he has lived his life using his guitar, which has a name, incidentally. It's actually named by Bob Rock. It's called the Northern Avenger. And his band DOA to be both entertaining and a blunt political instrument. Yeah, I, I got... Uh, politicized really early on uh, by my sister, older sister Karen, bringing home uh, uh, protest music. Pete Seeger, Arlo Guthrie, The Weavers, Bob Dylan, Peter Paul and Mary, that kind of ilk. So he took the fearlessness and fight the power attitude of his folk music heroes and ran it through amplifiers. February uh, 1978, I ran an ad in the Georgia Strait looking to start a punk rock band. That means Joe Keithley and DOA have made music across six decades which equates to a whole lot of shows. Somewhere over 4,000, maybe like 4,500. Yeah. Five different continents, 50 different countries. There's one. So when Nirvana, Nirvana's first shows in Seattle, the original lyrics. So it only made sense that a political songwriter should get into politics himself as a Burnaby city councillor. I, 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 I love the juxtaposition of the front man of DOA 
the suburban lifestyle and the, <laughs> and the local politician. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, the the politician stuff. People always said some magazine like twenty five years ago. This big magazine in Europe said, "DOA, they're cultural politicians," and uh, that kind of stuck with me. But his favorite political arena is still the stage. And this Saturday at the rickshaw, DOA will play the Rock Against Racism show. Something it's had to do before. Oh, here. That's the original Rock Against Racism. 1979. People always ask me, like, uh, Joe, so what's different between back when you started and now? And I said, well, back when we started, we were fighting racism sexism, greed, and warmongers. Now, 40 years later, what we're doing, we're fighting racism, sexism, greed, and warmongers. And the mantra is still the same. Talk minus action equals zero. You can still shred, can't he? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love how he plays guitar. It's almost violent how he plays guitar. <laughs> yeah. It really is. It's, uh, there's a lot of physical action in that. Well, I mean, it is punk rock, so it is punk rock. Punk rock always I don't has have to an stick energy with the that's theme. much different. Yeah, and and to think, a man in his sixties, still <laughs> fighting the power, still on stage playing punk rock. Mm -hmm. But now he's sort of like in it, so he can fight from within. That's true. I know. But anyway, good on him for <laughs> still doing it for sure. Yeah. All about making the world a better place, no doubt about it, whether you're talking punk or politics. Uh, yes, thanks for the shout-out on the um, photos of the crazy <laughs> the sun, sun phenomenon, the sun halo that we saw earlier. Uh, that might be the last of those we shoot I for saw a while, though. Yeah, well, tomorrow we are going to see more cloud cover than what we did today. So I don't think we'll see a sun halo, uh, but it's going to be equally as warm. We're talking about 20 to 25 degrees away from the water. Humidex at 27, but it's just one more day, everyone. And that's what we want. We don't want prolonged warmth right now. We just want a little snippets here and there so we don't get a problem with the uh, spring freshet. But enjoy tomorrow's heat, more cloud cover, and don't forget a risk of thunderstorms tomorrow evening. All right. Thanks very much, Christy. And thanks for watching, everybody. Have a good night. Good night, all. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.